So tonight we are uh, in Hebrews 4, uh, the opening uh, verses of Hebrews 4. As Pastor Shane shared the last couple weeks on Hebrews 3 and was just reiterating a little bit of what he was sharing on uh, disobedience and a lack of faith and how ultimately that kept the Israelites that were in the wilderness out of entering the promised land. I'm going to ask that you guys actually stand as we uh, prepare to read God's Word. It will be in Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 11. And it reads as this, Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. You may have a seat. And I realized I skipped a verse. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful word that you have given to us, the entirety of the scriptures. Father, they um, are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, as the next section tells us. Thank you that you have given it to us, Lord. Thank you that we have it, that we can know you better through it. And Father, we just ask for you to work here tonight through the power of your spirit. Would you uh, just anoint the words from my mouth? This is your message. It's not my own. And Father, may we uh, be ones who react to your word. May we be more than just hearers of your word, but may we be doers of your word. So Father, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the message tonight is The Believer's Rest. Someone heckled me out there. I think it was Mr. Farmer. You've been away too long. So the Wednesday night crowd that's, uh, you know, a little bit more intimate. I know a lot of you guys well as I look at the faces. Uh, You may have known that my wife and I welcomed a a new baby about seven weeks ago. And uh, thank you. So the irony is I'm teaching about rest and haven't had a whole lot of it in the last seven weeks. Uh, Our first child, who's about two and a half, was... Uh, really just a miracle sleeper. She was great. I think by like six weeks old, she was sleeping through the night. It was incredible. 12 weeks old, she slept 12-hour stretches, and it was fantastic. Um, For whatever reason, we weren't as fortunate this time around. Uh, Nevertheless, we are still blessed. Uh, Have a little baby boy now. So again, the irony is not lost on me, the believer's rest. And I really believe that there was a specific reason for this. I think I knew about, I don't know, 10 days ago or so, you mentioned, hey, you know, here's this next section coming up. I think you actually said it's on uh, the Sabbath and Sabbath rest. And I guess because of the beard, I was uh, called on 
to teach this message, but uh, interestingly enough, it, it fits very well as the Lord would have it. So this section opens up with the word therefore, and it really ties in to chapter three, everything that Pastor Shane had shared uh, the last couple of weeks. So we're just going to do a quick little backtracking, kind of remind ourselves uh, from where we came the last two weeks. I think personally, there's just kind of a bad chapter break here. Uh, this section really would start in chapter three, verse seven, and then continue all the way on through 4.11, uh, where we're going to be at tonight. In Hebrews 3, verse 12, it says, Take care, brethren, that there may not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And then there's the mention of the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness, who had hard hearts, who provoked God, who had sinned, and ultimately whose bodies fell in the wilderness, we're told. And then the section ends in Hebrews 3, 19, with these words, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. A sobering warning, stern words from the writer of this book. Now remember, these were the chosen people of God. These were his chosen people, the ones who saw his mighty miracles, who had um, you know, heard the messages of Moses, which were really directly from God. They had seen the pillar of cloud and smoke. They had received manna, so many other things, but they still didn't believe. They missed it. They missed out on the promise and the opportunity that was before them. And really, that should probably scare some of us in the room, does it? Just me? A little bit? I have one hand, okay. Everyone else is very confident in their faith. One person is slightly afraid. But the opening verse here says, let us fear. Let us fear that while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. NIV and others would read, let us be careful. Let us be careful to enter that rest. The Greek word for fear is phobos, where we get the modern idea of a phobia, a fear of something. It means to be afraid or to be alarmed. It can also mean to be in a state of reverence or in a state of awe. But we're told to fear that while the promise still remains of entering the rest, that you would seem to have come short of it. And that rest for the Israelites was the promised land. It was the land of Canaan. It was the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that they were supposed to come into after being freed out of slavery and captivity in the land of Egypt. But they missed it. They missed it because they didn't have faith, they didn't have belief, and they didn't unite their faith with trust as well. And I believe that the fear is something that we really should be afraid of, uh, not just, you know, be careful or be on your guard. Uh, the complete Jewish Bible is a, a kind of a messianic translation um, of the Bible, and it actually says these words, let us be terrified. I believe it's the only translation that uses that strong of language. Let us be terrified that we may miss out or not be able to enter that rest. Now, we know that the images in the Old Testament really serve to point us to something greater, Everything in the Old Testament points to something in the New Testament, and especially in this book of Hebrews. And we, as we move further, we're going to see about you know, Jesus uh, as the high priest. We're going to see how Melchizedek sort of pictured that. We're going to see the tabernacle or, or temple, and really how all those things are kind of a carbon copy of the temple in heaven and what is to come. But the picture of the promised land really points to an eternal promised land. There's an eternal rest that awaits the people of God. And it's much more important than a physical piece of land. It's beyond a, just a piece of dirt, but it's a 
place prepared, brothers and sisters, for you and I to spend eternity with the Lord. And just as the picture of the greater reality, their inability to enter the land was a picture of the greater reality, there's also the flip side of that, and that their unbelief and not entering the land actually really ultimately kept them from the presence of God. And that is the thing that we should fear, that we would miss out on that, that we would miss out on the very presence of God. So why is this important? Why is this analogy here important, talking about the promised land? Romans 15.4 tells us, for whatever was written in earlier times, it was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. There's purpose, brothers and sisters, and what's being written here? The writer just didn't write this because he felt like it. (laughs) It was much more than that. This is the inspired, authoritative word of God, and it is a warning to you and I today. It was a warning to them, the, the modern readers of this book, or modern hearers of this book of Hebrews, just as it was uh, to those in the wilderness. Verse 2 says, For indeed we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united in faith by those who heard it. We have had the good news preached to us, it says. In fact, would argue that we have had better news preached to us. Again, everything in the Old Testament kind of shadowed and, and prefigured the reality. They had the promise of the promised land. They had the promise of entering the land of Canaan. That was where their rest was going to be. I would say that, you know, Israel of old had sort of this, what I would call it, a pre-son promise, pre-Jesus promise. We have a post-son promise or the post-sun good news, you can say. And, and really, the good news has gotten better with time, has it not? They didn't have the full picture. They didn't have the full understanding at all. Pointed towards Jesus, ultimately. But they had the news of the promised land. That was to provide, really, temporal rest. There was nothing beyond that. The rest provided in Canaan was temporal rest. Now, of course, many didn't enter, save two, But even if they had entered it, even if they had entered temporal rest, all of them would die, like you and I. That's just the reality, right? The stats are amazing. One out of every one person born will die. But they could miss out on the eternal rest. And I would argue that a temporal rest really is of no value if there's no eternal rest, if there's no promise of that to come. And it says that the good news didn't profit them because it was not united in faith to those who heard. I think many of you have heard the saying that, you know, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in your garage at home would make you a car, correct? You guys have all heard that analogy. And in a like manner, simply being one of God's chosen people doesn't mean that you will enter the rest or enter the promised land, as was evident here. There's a faith that's required, and it's an active faith. And that faith is really belief plus trust. We're going to see that in a minute. Faith is really essential to the puzzle here. Uh, Really, it's essential to our entire faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. And we know that without faith, faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11, verse 6, tells us that. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, this message is, of course, about rest. It's not going to be about salvation by faith alone, but really, that is essential to this piece here. Faith is essential to salvation. And without it, you and I will be like those in the wilderness, those that didn't get to enter the promised land, those that were laid low in the wilderness, as it were. And then beyond salvation, really, faith is an essential piece of our sanctification. So faith is belief plus trust. I've heard it said. Many of you are familiar with the story of Charles Blondin. He was a a tightrope walker. I believe I've even shared this story before here. And during the 1850s, he he walked across a tightrope over Niagara Falls, and he crossed over from the U.S. side to the Canada side. And he did it doing a variety of things. I think he did it on a unicycle at one point in time. There are stories that he even carried a stove with him somehow and cooked an omelet as he walked on this tightrope over the falls. He would walk backwards and forwards. And then one time, he took a wheelbarrow, empty, and he crossed back and forth and He shouted out to the crowd, you know, of course they were applauding and they they thought it was, you know, just great what he was doing. And he said, how many of you believe that I can go across this tightrope with a wheelbarrow? Of course, everyone raised their hand. They had just seen him do it. And he said, okay, who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? And no one got in the wheelbarrow. I think it was reported that later at one time his manager finally did it as kind of a publicity stunt. But at that time, no one did it. And that, I think, brothers and sisters, is a difference between belief and trust. If I see something happen, I might believe that it can happen. But am I going to put my trust in it? Am I going to get in the wheelbarrow, if you were? And that's really the call that God has with our faith, is that it's belief plus trust. You can believe in God, James 2.19 says. You believe in God? That's great. The demons also believe in God and they shudder. So there's a difference between just a mere head knowledge, just a belief. We know that the Israelites believed in God. Of course, they were his chosen people, but again, they saw the mighty works in Egypt through the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna, and so forth. I mean, all of these miracles that they had seen. But as it came time for them to enter into the promised land, if you want to read a little bit more, you can see some of this in Numbers, uh, Numbers 14 as well, talks about this. It's recorded that they didn't trust that God was going to give them the land. He told them, he promised them, but we know that they sent spies into the land, right? And the reports came back that, that the cities are strong and mighty and fortified and that, that the people are strong and, and large and it's going to be really difficult to overcome these people. And they said, ah, it's, it's all too much. We, we can't believe God can do that. He's not going to give us this land. We're not going to be able to conquer these people. And they were disobedient, They had unbelief. They didn't trust. And these things ultimately led to their demise. Hebrews 4, verses 3 to 5. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. 
Pastor Shane covered this. It's a quote from Psalm 95, and it was several times in chapter 3, and it's really recorded several times even in this section, at least different chunks of it. So why again would this quote be here? Well, we could say that it was to warn the contemporary readers or hearers of, of this letter that uh, there was the fact that they would not be able to enter into the rest. And certainly that's part of it, and I think that warning would apply to us here today, of course. But if we read on past verse 3, if we go into verse 4 and 5, we can see that there's a purpose and an emphasis on what the rest is. The Greek word used here is the word katapausis. It's used 10 times in these 11 verses. And it's the idea of rest or repose or of settling down. An idea of rest sounds great, doesn't it? I know for me it sounds great with a seven-week-old at home who doesn't sleep very well. Rest for me would look like getting more than four hours of sleep in one chunk, right? Six weeks ago, it was two hours, and, you know, there's been a little bit of a change. I'm getting four now, at least until 3 a.m., and that's how long I've been up, at least for the past several days. That's his wonderful little hour that he likes to wake up. So for me, that's the kind of rest that I would love. But we know that our culture has uh, really its own views of, of rest and what that looks like. Usually it's focused around physical rest, is it not? People are tired, worn out, burdened, overwhelmed. I would say more often than not, we even define it as escape beyond just a physical rest, but we're looking for an escape. And our culture offers us really a myriad of options for that. We can take vacations, we can watch TV, we've got social media, we've got things basically to uh, sort of tune out, as it were, to escape the realities of this world. I wrote in my notes, we desire to detach from our current state, namely our state of mind, because we are overwhelmed, unsatisfied, and frantically searching for more. Perhaps we feel physically worn out, but likely at the core we are emotionally or spiritually worn out. Is our society not overworked, overtaxed, overburdened, overstressed, overstimulated, there's a lot of little smirks and nodding heads out there. It sounds like you're identifying with some of these, right? The idea of rest is much more, though, than just catching your breath or, or taking a break. A lot of people just don't even feel like they have time to rest or relax. Maybe they'll take a vacation. How many of you or maybe you know someone that takes a vacation, goes away for a few days, a long weekend, maybe even a week, and they come back, and what do they need? Another vacation, rest, because it wasn't enough. How many of you know the movie or have seen the movie, What About Bob? Richard Dreyfuss and Bill Murray, remember that? Richard Dreyfuss is this uh, uh, kind of egotistical psychotherapist, and Bill Murray is this patient, neurotic, uh, obsessive-compulsive. And Richard Dreyfuss goes away on vacation for a while, and he's not going to be there to counsel his patient. And of course, you know, neurotic Bill Murray doesn't know what to do, so he somehow finds where he is on vacation, way out at this uh, lakeside retreat somewhere. And he, he frantically goes up and says, you know, well, what am I going to do? I, I need to have my, my meetings with you, and I, I need to have my pills. i got to have my pills. And Richard Dreyfuss writes out a little prescription, takes out his pad, and he hands it to Bill Murray, and he says, here, this is uh, what you need to do the next time you feel overwhelmed. And he reads it, and he says, 
You need to take a vacation. Do you remember who's seen it? From your problems. You need to take a vacation from your problems. And that's really what most Americans are looking to do, right? When we seem to rest or when we seem to want to rest, we really want to take a vacation from our problems, from this life, from this earth, from the burdens that we face. But the underlying problem is, and this plays out in the movie, by the way, is that the problems don't go away. (laughs) Doesn't matter where you go on vacation, the problems are likely still going to follow you. You'll still be thinking about them. I would submit that society's idea of rest is really totally off base. It's totally wrong. There's nothing, of course, in this life that will satisfy that longing that we have in our hearts, save the Lord. Augustine of Hippo is quoted as saying, famously, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O Lord. So what about biblical rest? What is this talking about here? Well, we see in verse 4 that God specifically calls this my rest. There's certainly a differentiation between God saying my rest and then the rest of the promised land of Canaan, this physical piece of dirt, if you will. But verse 4 is really a quote direct out of Genesis 2. I'm going to have you turn there with me. Genesis 2, verse 2. Pastor Michael shared on Sunday that there are some, maybe even one in particular, Christian leader that is saying we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And we, of course, know that that is not the case, you know, eh, wrong. But we really need to go back and see what's going on here. The writer of Hebrews quotes Genesis 2.2. There's a a portion of it, if you will, in uh, Hebrews 4. But the entirety of Genesis 2.2 says, By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Verse 3, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. See the word rested there if you're a note taker or a writer in your Bible. Go ahead and underline that word rested. It's in there in verse 2 and it's in there in verse 3. Underline that next to it. You can write the Hebrew word Shabbat. S-H-A-B-B-A-T. Many of you are familiar with that word, are you not? The Hebrew word is Shabbat. The English would be the Sabbath, referring to the Uh, the day of the week that Jews would celebrate as a day set apart and holy. No work to be done, of course. Now, we often hear of the Sabbath or Shabbat in Hebrew. That's the modern-day word, by the way. If you're in Israel, if you're in a Jewish community, uh, Shabbat is the day that you would observe. Now, we commonly think of it as a noun. It is the thing. It is the day. But here in Genesis 2, it's not a noun. It's a verb. I don't want to get too technical, but you can see what's going on here. He rested... He Shabbated, if I could make it a little more modern and easier to understand, he Shabbated on the seventh day. And that's the first time that that word appears in the scriptures. Later, that verb becomes a noun, that specific day. God created that day, and then he, he commands, of course, his people to observe it and to follow it. But it started with a verb, 
Shabbat means to cease, to rest, to find repose, to be still, to be quiet, or to have an activity no longer continue. To have an activity no longer continue. This idea of rest comes from God itself, and as I said, it's not a noun. It isn't a place in which we find ourselves, but instead it's a verb, and it is a state in which we find ourselves. It's more than just a place of rest, but it is a state of rest that God has created for us. And so God, after he finishes his work, Genesis 2 says, he ceased. He didn't rest in our modern sense of the word. He wasn't seeking escape. He wasn't trying to detach from the world that he just created. He marveled at it. He called it good. That wasn't the case. So what does it mean that he ceased? God of Israel never sleeps or slumbers. He doesn't need a nap after all those hard work of six days of creation. Newton's uh, three laws of motion, uh, the first of which is the law of inertia, and it says that any object in motion will tend to stay in motion unless an outside force acts upon it. And then conversely, any object at rest will remain at rest unless an outside force acts upon it. And I think this is a good picture for us to understand really what the idea of God's resting here is. So if God is working, figuratively speaking, whatever that looks like, in the work of creation, uh, he is working. If he's doing something, he is in motion. But when he ceases, when he stops, he's at rest. And there's a key point in understanding this. Again, it's not that God needs to rest. He doesn't need a break. He doesn't need a vacation. But it's just a complete cessation. The idea being that everything was perfect. After those seven days of creation, everything was done. He ceased from creation because there was nothing more that could be improved upon it. Do you guys understand? I know it's late on a Wednesday night here, but <laughs> you see what's going on? So what is God's rest? What is this idea of Shabbat? Three distinguishing factors. First, it is a divine rest. God calls this his rest or my rest in the scripture, but it is his rest. We don't get a special rest of our own. He doesn't create just something for us. He calls us into his rest. We get to partake in that. We get to enjoy in that. It's a divine rest from his cessation of work. Secondly, it's a cosmic rest. We're told that his works were finished from the foundation of the world, verse 3. Remember that in the order of the days of creation, there was evening and there was morning and there was the next day. But curiously, after the seventh day, there's no record of the day ending. And many believe that the seventh day, this holy and set-apart day, the idea of Shabbat, the idea of rest, is a day that sort of just still continues for God. We can't get all into that tonight because we just don't have the time. But we don't know what days look like in, uh, in God's perspective, do we? We don't know what a day looks like in heaven. One day there will be no night because the light of the sun, S-O-N, will be radiant and glowing. There will be no day or night. So could it be that maybe after this day of creation, there's just this continued existence, this perfect rest? And thirdly, the rest, so it's divine, it's cosmic, 
and it is a working rest. A little bit of an oxymoron. But God finished his great work, and he rested, it says. It was the proper repose of completing something great. But Jesus later refers to his ongoing work, even later in this book, where he's currently acting as our great high priest. We're going to get into that very shortly. John 5, excuse me, John 5, 17 says, but he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. There's an active rest that's going on here. But this rest is offered to us because by nature we don't have it. And I think all of us would say amen to that. We, we feel this longing. And that started from not too long after the foundation of the world as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. There was an idea of restlessness. Got to say that one slow. When you're a little tired and running low on sleep, you got to go real slow. Restlessness. What happened after the fall? What did Adam and Eve do in their restlessness? They hid themselves from God. They scurried around. They didn't want to be found out. They tried to hide. Of course, there was nowhere for them to hide. They were exiled out of the garden. And then we know the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain ended up wandering the earth after his sin. I wrote, simply put, outside of a right relationship with God, humanity is simply not at rest. And from those first days of original sin all the way throughout the generations to the Israelites in the wilderness, all the way throughout until uh, the first century, these readers of Hebrews, and all the way till today, humanity is seeking rest. And as Augustine again said, our hearts will only be at rest when they find rest in you, O Lord. Verse 6 says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of a day after that. A little bit confusing sometimes when you read this, maybe a little bit wordy of a section, if I'm being honest. These verses a little bit repetitive here, but really verse 8 kind of gives us the summation of what's happening. If Joshua had given them rest, if the land of Canaan, the promised land flowing with milk and honey, had been the ultimate rest, then why would some around 400 years later, God speak through David in the Psalms, Psalm 95, and say, today, if you hear his voice. If the rest was realized when they entered the land, then there wouldn't be a rest that would still be offered. We know that the uh, early hearers or readers of this book, the early Hebrew Christians, they were the first uh, messianic Jews, right, you could say, had experienced tough times. I learned a little bit about that as we opened this book. But they were now you know, enlightened, uh, knowing who the Messiah is. They came to faith in Christ, and they were expecting rest. They knew the scriptures well. Of course, the Jewish people had a misunderstanding that the Messiah would be this you know, ruling, conquering uh, person that would come in, overthrow the government, etc., and that all things were going to be cheery and rosy and never have a problem in your life. But that wasn't the case here, was it? These people were facing persecution at the time of this, and really this writer is writing this encouraging letter to give them hope, to remind them uh, of the assurance that they have and that the promise still remained. 
And let me say that maybe that's even some of us tonight, and we need that reminder, and we need that hope, and we need that assurance that there is a rest that still remains. These early Hebrew Christians uh, were facing a lot of different things, but maybe not too dissimilar from what some of us are experiencing in our modern culture. And sometimes we wonder, when are we going to find rest? When is it going to end? What's going to happen? We keep trying to maybe detach from some of these things going on in our life. But we need to attach to God. That's where our answer is. So verse 6 tells us that the rest still remains. The rest remains for you and I today, brothers and sisters, just as much as it did back then. And really, there's a tone of urgency. The text says, today, today if you hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. That today in the first century was there, but that today is here today, right here tonight at Living Truth on a Wednesday night. And verse 9 continues, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, verse 10, has himself also rested from his works as God did his. So curiously, we see the word that the rest still remains. There still remains a rest. How do we interpret that in light of verse 3? Verse 3 says that we who believe enter that rest. And that word, that verb is in the present tense. That word, we have entered or we are entering that rest actively at the time this was written in the first century. But yet there still remains a rest. Kind of a, an already not yet type of a fulfillment seen here. And there's several of these throughout the Bible. See, as believers, we've already entered that rest. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Much more than a physical rest. There is a soul rest that is promised here. And when we come to him, figuratively speaking, we enter into that rest. That's the already. But then there's still the not yet. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And really the the rest of our Christian lives, that's kind of a pun intended, right? The rest of our Christian lives, uh, from the time that we have a conversion until death, From conversion to death, we are learning to trust and we are learning to rest in God. It's an ongoing work, the sanctification process. So again, there still remains the rest for the people of God. The Greek word is sabbatismos, S-A-B-B-A-T-I-S-M-O-S. It's the only time that it's used here in the New Testament. It's the form of sabbaton, which refers to the day itself. That would be the Greek way of saying Sabbath or Shabbat. They would say Sabbaton. That's the day itself. But Sabbatismos, it refers to the specific form of rest experienced on that day. It's the specific form of rest that the Jewish people got to have. Now, keeping in mind that the things in the Old Testament reveal or point to something greater We look at the Sabbath and the rest that the Jews were commanded. Um, A lot of times it's seen as a commandment because unfortunately they they put these heavy burdens on people. But really from the beginning, it was was meant to be a blessing. It was meant to be something uh, that they experienced with joy. But the legalism of the religious leaders um, 
Again, and that continues even till today, where if you go to Israel, you can't push a button in an elevator and you can't flip on a light switch and on and on and on it goes. People are just pressed down under this thumb of, of legalism. But the people missed the intent of the image, that it pointed to a greater rest to come. They got saddled down with all of these other things. And we see that there's this tension here because we have a gospel and a faith where we are saved by grace, through faith, right? Not of ourselves. But we're still told to be diligent to enter the rest. There's a little bit of a work that is sort of required for us, if you will. We don't simply, you know, pray a prayer to God and then sit back and say, you know, okay, well, whenever it's my time, I'm going to enter the rest. The Israelites in the wilderness did that, and how did it work out for them? They didn't have the faith. They didn't unite their belief with faith. So what does the Sabbath picture? What is this Old Testament uh, reference? What is the future Sabbath to come? And really, it's, it's heaven. It's as simple as that. It's an eternity with our God. It's an eternal rest that we get to experience. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. This last Sunday, as we've been going through Matthew, we heard in 517 of Matthew, where Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets, but I came to what? To fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled the idea of the Sabbath. Colossians 2.16 says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what's to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Friends, the Sabbath day was the shadow, but the eternal rest of God is that substance. Verse 10 says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And just as God ceased from his works, as he stood back, as he, he marveled and he entered this, as we talked about this perpetual state of rest, we too will enter that rest. We will enter his rest and enjoy the same rest that he enjoys. Jesus, in his final moments on the cross, he cried out to tell us, die. It is finished. And he ushered in the new covenant. His death, his burial, his, his resurrection, he, under, he ushered in the new covenant. The old covenant was gone. The new covenant was here. And with that new covenant... Jesus also instituted a new pattern, if you will, for how the believers are supposed to rest and work. According to the Sabbath in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was what day of the week? The seventh day. It was the end of the week. So that was six days of labor, of work, of toil, of pain, of sweat. And the picture is that Man is restless, he's wearied, he's tired, he's burdened by the things of this world. But he looks forward to the end of the week, and not too dissimilar, our American culture does that, right? We work the nine to five, Monday through Friday, everybody can't wait for Friday night, right? The weekends are coming. But Sunday afternoon rolls around, Sunday evening, and how many people dread going to work on Monday? I don't dread going to work on Monday, because I don't work on Monday. The church is closed. <laughs> Not that I dread going to work on Tuesday, but 
But what about the pattern that was changed? So Jesus was resurrected on what day of the week? The first day of the week. That's when early Christians started to meet. People will say, oh, well, well you know, Christians changed the Sabbath. It used to be on the, on the sixth day of the week, but Christians came along and they changed it to the first day and it, it's all wrong and there's these strict Sabbatarians and, the, and they'll say that you have to worship on Saturday. You know, the man came along and changed it. I would argue that Jesus changed it because he resurrected on the first day of the week. So now we come together as Christians and we have a rest, if you will, our, our already rest, not the not yet rest, we're not there, but the already rest we have every Sunday when we come worship. We really have it every day. I mean, Jesus is our Sabbath rest, but we come together and the first day of the week is rest. And then from that is our work. So in the Old Testament, it was work, 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 and all they could do was look forward to that rest. But Jesus flipped it upside down. And the week now starts with rest, but then out of that comes work. There is still work to be done, brothers and sisters. Galatians 2.20 says, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And Philippians 2.13, he says this, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. While we're on earth, we find rest by letting God work through us. Our work is not done. There is still work to be done, but it's not our work. We cease, we desist from our work, our ways, what we want to do, and we yield to Christ. What work do you have for me, Lord? What, what work do you want me to do? The future fulfillment of rest, we see in at least one little glimpse in Revelation 14, 13. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. But until that time comes, brothers and sisters, we've been given a command, we've been given a warning, really. It's our final verse. Verse 11, it says, Therefore, let us be diligent. Let us make every effort, says the NIV and a few other translations, to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Verse 3 says, We who believe have entered that rest, but yet we're also told to be diligent to enter that rest, to make every effort. So what do we make of this tension What's going on here? Ray Steadman says this. Paradoxically, we read in verse 11, the exhortation to make every effort to enter that Sabbath rest. Of course, effort is still needed to resist self-dependence. If we think that we have what it takes in ourselves to do all that needs to be done, we shall find ourselves restless and ultimately ineffective. Yet decision is still required of us, and exertion is still needed. But results can only be expected from the realization that God is also working, and he will accomplish the needed end. There's also a clear teaching of Psalm 127, verse 1, which says, Unless the Lord builds the house, 
its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Human effort is still needed, but human effort is never enough. And so the question to us is, are we being diligent to enter the rest? Are we being diligent to enter the rest? Do we have a heart of unbelief? Do we have a lack of faith? Or do we have those things? And are we seeking to diligently enter that rest? I hope so. It's not too late. That exhortation of today, as I mentioned, still remains today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can say, I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to be diligent to enter that rest so that I won't miss out, so that I won't miss it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the promised rest that lies ahead of us. Thank you for an eternity of rest with you and that we get to enjoy your rest. It's not just a a place where only we get to go. But Lord, you call us to yourself. You call us to partake in the same rest that you have enjoyed from the foundation of the earth. And what a beautiful thing. Thank you, Lord, that those of us who know you no longer have hearts that are restless because our hearts rest in you and we look forward to that day. Nevertheless, Lord, let us be found faithful. Let us be found having diligence to enter into that rest that none of us would have an evil and unbelieving heart that would keep us out of your promised rest. Lord, there's really an encouragement to the casual Christian that would just say, well, I'm I'm a cultural Christian. I was born into a Christian home. I check a box on a form. I hope that, you know, when I, when I die one day, maybe I'll, I'll go to be with, with God and, you know, he'll, he'll have mercy on me. But Lord, we see the example of what happened to your chosen people, your people who quite literally walked with you through the desert. They were found to have unbelief. They weren't diligent. They didn't have faith and they missed out. And Father, that really, in a way, should terrify us But at the same time, Lord, we can have hope that the promise remains, that it's open to any of us. That promise is there today. All we need to do is turn towards you, that we would be diligent to enter into that rest. What a beautiful uh, picture that we have um, in this section of scripture tonight, Father. I pray that this would really sink down deep into our hearts and that we would walk away from here with a desire to know you more, to grow closer to you, and really have this healthy tension between fear and hope. I pray we wouldn't go one way or the other, Lord, but we would have this this great um, line that we would walk with a healthy fear of the Lord, but an expectant hope of what you have promised us, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you for the surety that we have through you and through your word and through your son, Jesus, that gives us that access. Father, we look forward to that rest. We look forward to the day where 
we won't have to detach where there will be no more hurt, no more pain, no more sorrow. All things will be made new. All things will be perfect in the light of your glory and of your love. And until that day, Lord, let us be faithful. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.